Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. In this sermon series, Church and State, we're going to be exploring the history of the church's transformation from a small Jewish sect into the official religion of the Roman Empire. I hope you enjoy. Uh, The scripture reading is from the second chapter of Acts. Now when they heard this, They were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the other apostles, Brothers, what should we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you, for your children, and for all who are far away, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to him. And Peter testified with many other arguments and exhorted them, saying, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. So those who welcomed his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 persons were added. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. The word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. Just a side comment, I don't think any pastor ever reads this passage and doesn't wonder why they can't have 3,000 baptized in one day. (laughs) I'm sure Alex is searching for that very answer. Our second scripture reading comes from Matthew 10, 34 to 39. This is from Jesus, this is his words. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set man against his father, and daughter against her mother, and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Which already happens, by the way, right? So, (laughs) he didn't cause that one. And one's foes will be members of one's household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up the cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Those who find their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. This is the word of the Lord. So we are doing our sermon series, Church and State, The Rise of Early Christianity. And we are in the fourth part of our sermon series where we are looking at individual Christians who made a contribution to the Christian faith. These are better known as church fathers and mothers. And these people helped to transform the Christian faith from a small religion that was growing into the official religion of the Roman Empire. The way these sermons work in this last part of our series is that I'm going to tell you a story about a particular person. I'm going to tell you who they were, where they came from, how they became a Christian. And then I'm going to tell you about what they did, what made them worth remembering, and how does that impact us today in the 21st century. So last week we talked about the church father, Irenaeus, and some of his rather peculiar perspectives on Jesus. This week we're going to be talking about a church mother, a woman named Perpetua. So Vibia Perpetua, she was born around 180 AD in Carthage, the city of Carthage, which is located on the northern crest of the African continent. Her name, Vibia, indicates to us that her family had deep ties to the politics 
in the region. Being that she was from an aristocratic family, she was a woman of great means and resources, and therefore she had access to some of the best education that money could afford. But like all women of her day who came from these aristocratic families, there was an expectation that she would marry at a certain point in time. Now her father, he expected that Perpetua, that she would take care of him, honor him, enhance the family name through marriage. And in fact, this is what she does. From what we can tell, she does get married. It's probably an arranged marriage to another aristocratic family in Carthage. And being that she was from the upper crust of Carthaginian society, she was also a pagan. She worshiped the Roman gods and goddesses. But then, around the age of 20, something remarkable happens to Perpetua. She has an encounter with the Christian faith and it changes her entire perspective on the world. And very much like what we were talking about last week, when you were a Christian at this point in time, it was something that really impacted you in a huge way because it's not just that you had to leave behind worshiping those gods and goddesses. It was that those gods and goddesses didn't even exist. That's what you were told. And so because of that, what would happen is you would often have to break ties with your family. So these people, they took very, very seriously, very seriously, what we read in Matthew. And what, is, what does Jesus say? He says, anyone who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take up the cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Now, Perpetua, she etched those words onto her heart. And she believed in that so strongly that she did indeed cut ties with her family, which resulted in some very serious consequences for her life. So at this point in time, there were two major events taking place in Perpetua's life that made this decision rather jarring for her. The first thing that was happening is that she had just given birth to a baby boy. And so by cutting ties with her family, she was cutting off her support system by leaving behind her husband's family. But she was also cutting off her support system with her family of origin, which could be very bad because she could end up penniless out on the street. The second issue that was going on is that around this time, it's similar to what we talked about last week in the city of Lyon in France. And so as more and more Christians are being converted in the city of Carthage, what you find is that Christianity garners this really negative reputation. Because what's happening? They're doing what? They're splitting families apart because people are converting and they're leaving their families behind. And so as a result, people start getting rounded up and they get taken into custody and they are going to be punished for their affiliation with the church. And this is exactly what happens to Perpetua at the age of 22. She's one of those who are rounded up. And the reason why we know this is because Perpetua, she wrote a journal of her time in prison. And that journal has persisted through the centuries. It's actually a pretty amazing account. It's something that's worth going out. You can buy it. It's a little thin, teeny book. But it's worth having because reading her account is really, really fascinating. Now, the account begins. I'm going to tell you about the account. So you can, I guess you can get away with not buying it, right? <laughs> she gets no royalties at this point in time. So the account begins with her father coming to her and begging her to recant her belief in Christianity, which she refuses to do. She won't do it. 
And so as a result, she gets baptized, and then she and her son are transported to prison together. The next scene in the book is when her mother and her brother come to visit her in prison, and what they do is they bribe the jailer to move Perpetua to a better part of the prison so that she can be with her child. Now, in Carthaginian society, and in the way it worked, is that they could be very barbaric, and they were known for their cruelty when it came to punishing people who they felt had done wrong. And so one thing that they would do with women is if they had children, they would separate the women from their children as a way of inducing psychological torture on the women. Now, when I wrote this sermon, <laughs> several months ago, and when I, I planned my sermons like a year in advance. So I had no clue that this was going to be a national conversation that we would be talking about right now. And we're going to talk a little bit more about this concept, what's happening here later on. But I'm just going to say up front right now, I think it's in our best interest as a nation that we are not being compared to the Carthaginian system of justice. I'm just going to say that right now. If people looking back on us and what we're doing right now, if they're making any parallels with what the Carthaginians did later on in history, that's not good for us as a society. Just going to say that right now. We're going to talk more about it later. That's just what I want to say right now. So she's reunited with her son in prison, and she tells her mother and her brother, look, you're going to have to raise my son for me because I'm going to be executed very soon. And her brother, he comes to her and he says, look, you should ask God for a vision. Ask God to tell you something about maybe what's going to happen. And so she asks for this vision and the vision is granted. And the first vision that she has is a vision of climbing this dangerous ladder. And the ladder has all of these weapons that are kind of connected to it. And at the bottom of the ladder, she looks down and there's a serpent circling around it. And the way she interprets this particular vision is that she believes that what this means is that she and the other martyrs are going to endure great suffering. The second vision she has has to do with a younger brother of hers known as Denocrates. Now, Denocrates, he actually had died a number of years earlier. And from what we can tell, based on what interpreters think, he died from cancer. His face had been disfigured from cancer. He went through uh, a lot of pain as a result of it. Died around the age of seven. Now, she's concerned because she doesn't know whether or not her brother, Denocrates, is in heaven with God. And this is a question that she has about this. She wants to know, is he there? And she's wondering this based on the scripture we read from Acts this morning. Less than the 3,000 people who were baptized at once, which would be fantastic. This is more why we read it. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you, for your children, and for all who are far away, everyone whom our Lord God calls to him. Now, if you look up at this, you can see that it says, Repent, which means to turn, and be baptized, and you will be forgiven. That's how your sins are forgiven. Do you see that? So it's those two things in conjunction with each other. Now, I will tell you that in our tradition, we believe that you don't have to do both of those things to be forgiven. You can simply ask God for forgiveness if you want to in the Presbyterian tradition. But 
if you were to read this particular scripture in isolation, you could come to that conclusion that you need to be baptized in order to be forgiven. And so she wants to know, what's going to happen to my brother, Denocrates? What's going to happen to my son? Because remember, she's the only one in her family who's a Christian. So she doesn't know what's going to happen to her son. What happens if he doesn't get baptized? Now, interestingly, several hundred years after she writes this account, the Roman Catholic Church will use her journal and this scripture and some other church fathers to promote the idea that if you are an infant and you are not baptized before you die, because remember, infant baptism or infant deaths at that time, there were very high rate of infant death, that you would not have the sin of Adam and Eve, the original sin of Adam and Eve removed from you, and therefore God would end up barring you as a little baby from having access to heaven. That was where that came from. Now, again, I just want to make sure we're all clear here. We don't believe that to be true, okay? And interestingly, neither does Perpetua for that matter. Because if you read to the end of this vision about her brother Denocrates, she sees a vision of him and, and he's fine. He doesn't have any problems at all. He's actually, he, all the cancer that was on his face is gone. There's just a scar there, and he's happy, and he's healthy. And so I find it very interesting that they would use her writings to promote that, given that ultimately he ends up in heaven anyway. But we'll come back to that a little bit later. So the next part of the journal is that her father comes back to her in prison once again and says, can you please just let this whole thing go? Just stop. And, of course, what do you think she said? No. I'm going to do it. Because she believes that when you are a follower of Jesus, you take up your cross and you follow him. Right? That's the whole idea behind it. Now, when she was transferred from one part of the prison to the other part of the prison, she ends up being placed with another Christian, a slave woman whose name is Felicity. Felicity. Now, Felicity, she's pregnant with a child. And there was a law in the Roman Empire that said very specifically, and Carthage was part of the Roman Empire at this point, that if you were pregnant, you were not allowed to execute a woman. And so Felicity and Perpetua, they pray every day that Felicity would be able to give birth so that she could be martyred with everyone else. Now this is where Perpetua's journal ends. And a narrator comes in later and fills in the rest of the details as to what happened. We don't know if it's a first-person account of somebody who actually saw it or they're filling it in from memories later, but I want to give you the account of at least what it says in her journal. So on the day of the gladiatorial games, all the martyrs, they're led into the Carthaginian amphitheater. And this is the actual amphitheater right here. This is what it looked like. And so they would have been led into there. And on the side there, which is, which is at that hilltop, that's where everybody would have sat, is around the side. And they start chanting that they want to have the martyrs scourged. Now, a scourge is basically like a whip with chains on it that has a ball with hooks on the end. It's really, really brutal. So if they would have been scourged first, the next thing that happened is that the gladiators would, gladiators would have left the ring. And you can see that there's those little entrances in and out. And those led to cages and different places in the back where they would keep people and things. And so at this point, they release wild beasts into the amphitheater. So for the men, they release uh, a boar, a bear, a leopard. And to the women, 
they release a wild cow. Now, these animals, they end up injuring. In some instances, they end up killing some of the people. But then, the final thing that happens is they remove the animals, and the executioner comes out. And the way that you were executed is that you would have been beheaded. And according to the narrator, the executioner was a novice, and he kept hitting people on the bones of their neck. And so Perpetua, what it says is that when it comes her turn, she takes the blade, she puts it in between the vertebrae of her neck so that he can finish off the job properly. Now, that is probably a bit dramatized from the way that it actually happened. But it indicates something very important to us about Christianity at this point in history. I'm telling you this for a reason. The first thing it indicates about the Christians at this point in time is that they were pretty fanatical about their dedication to their faith. I mean, they were serious about doing this and serious to the point where they were willing to seek out opportunities where they could suffer and die like Jesus. The second reason that I point this out is because there's something really fascinating going on within Christianity at this point in time, which is that Christianity has the ability to break down and transcend social conventions. So the idea of gender and class distinctions in Roman society, they were very etched in, very etched in. And yet when people became Christians, those things could fall away. So you have Felicity, who's what? She's a, a slave. And then you have Perpetua, who's at the highest point. She's an aristocrat in society. And yet when they enter into that gladiatorial ring together, they are equals in martyrdom. Very important. It has the ability to transcend those things. First thing that ever could do that, by the way. Now, those two things are extraordinarily important for our understanding of Christianity. Why do we care about Perpetua, though? Like, why do we care about what she wrote? Well, there's a couple of different things I think that we should care about with this. So, first of all, Perpetua is the first female voice that we have of a Christian at this point in time. There's plenty of other men who have written at this point, but she's the first person. First person journal is what we have from her. So she's incredibly important in that way. And as I said, her thinking very much influenced the Roman Catholic Church and their doctrine of infant baptism. Which brings me to something that I actually think is really important for us to consider. How many people in here grew up Roman Catholic? Or at least were affiliated. A lot of you, right? Yeah. Okay, now, here's the thing. We're Protestants, right? We're a different version of Christianity than Roman Catholics. And one of the things that we do is that we tend to focus very heavily on the Bible to the exclusion of everything else, right? We say that the Bible is a book unto itself, and everything you need to know about Christianity can be found within those pages, right? You don't need to look anywhere else. You're probably aware of that, right? We focus heavily on the Bible. But the Roman Catholics are different in this regard. Yes, they focus on the Bible, but they also believe that the writings of other Christian authors are just as important as some of the authors in the Bible. So if you've ever wondered, how do they come up with some of these traditions, like the necessity of baptizing an infant before it dies, which isn't found anywhere in the Bible? Like, you look in the Bible, that's nowhere in there. They come up with it because they believe that these Christian authors, that they were just as inspired by God as the New Testament authors. Now, I kind of like that in a sense, personally, because what it means is 
that you have the ability to contribute to the Christian faith. It's the idea that Christianity doesn't stop with the New Testament. That in a sense, Christianity is not static, that it's this ever-growing, ever-evolving organism that changes with the people who come into it. And so, are you all the same as the people who started our faith 2,000 years ago? No, you're not. You're very different from them. You're even different from the people who were part of the Christian faith 100 years ago. And so, what this means is that your thoughts matter. You have something, each one of you in here, you have something unique and significant that you contribute to the faith, and you can contribute to forwarding the faith. Now, I would expect that each of you in here have one of three things going through your mind. The first thing that maybe you have going through your mind is, that's pretty cool that I could contribute to the Christian faith. The second thing you might be going through your mind is, I kind of like the Christian faith the way it is. No contributions necessary. <laughs> and the third thing you might be thinking is, who, me? Please. And I know, because I was sitting where many of you are sitting, and I remember coming to church and thinking to myself, I don't know anything about this stuff. Like, honestly, I come here because I'm just trying to be a good person and lead a good life. Can you just help me do that? Can, can you just get me there? Right? I don't, know. I don't know about the Bible. I don't know about the stories. I don't know about any of that stuff. But here's the thing. You don't have to have a master's degree in divinity to make a contribution to the Christian faith. You don't. Yes, I may know more than you all do about the Christian faith. I hope I do. It's my job. I mean, if I didn't, it'd be pretty sad. But what I have found in my time is that it's actually people just like you who have come up with some of the most original and interesting ways to approach the faith. And the reason why is because guys like me, people like me, people like Judy, we've spent a lot of time studying it, and so we think about it in one way often. And it's hard for us to think outside the box. And you all have the ability to do that in ways that we don't. And so in that sense, I want you to realize that, yeah, you may be sitting there and thinking, what do I know? Like, what, what, what could I possibly do? You have more than you realize. And this brings me to the second reason why Perpetua's writings are so important. Perpetua's writings, they remind us that Christianity at its core has the ability to be an equalizing force in our world. Jesus' vision of the world is that everybody has a seat at the table. That's his vision of the world. And if you look in the Gospels and you read his parables, the parables are often reminding us that we need to set aside all of these social conventions that kind of define our lives. So your money, your education, your family of origin, your gender, your ethnicity, your nationality, none of those things matter when you're a Christian. Because when you're a Christian, all those things go away and Christianity trumps all of that stuff. Your identity as a Christian means more than any of that. And Perpetua, she took that really seriously. I mean, think about it for a second. This woman had money, right? And if she wanted to, she could have paid and gotten out of that situation. She didn't have to go through with that if she didn't want to. But yet, once she was a Christian, she believed that we're all in this together. And we're all going to do it together. So it didn't matter that she was being executed next to a slave woman. 
She saw herself as being equal to that slave woman, which is a remarkable thing. It's one thing to sit here and to say that you believe in equality. Everybody says they believe in equality, right? I don't think there's a single person in here who would say, oh, I don't believe in equality. Everybody does. It's a whole other thing to actually live it out. Living out equality means being uncomfortable. It means stretching yourself. It means doing things that you probably don't want to do. And one of the things that I think Jesus asks us to do when it comes to equality is putting ourselves in other people's shoes. So when I think of this immigrant situation that we're dealing with, all of the refugees around the world, I often put myself in their shoes, and this is what I think about. I think about, okay, if I'm living in Arlington Heights, and I wake up one morning, and I go to the grocery store, and it's empty, and there's not going to be any trucks coming by to replenish it anytime soon, and I go to the gas station, and there's no gas, and there's no gas trucks coming to replenish that anytime soon, and I call the police, and the police don't come because the police aren't working anymore. And if I call the fire department, I call the hospital, none of those things function. Society as I know it has broken down. If I'm in that situation and I don't have resources, and remember, most of the people who are walking here don't have the resources to buy a plane ticket. They don't have the resources to do the things that many of us in here would do if we were in that situation. What I would do is I would go to my wife and I'd look at my kids and I'd say, all right, where are we going? And the first thing we would do is we would try to find a place where we could be safe. Now, if I have a car, I'm going to drive there. But if I don't, we're literally going to start walking. And we try to go first to some place within the United States, if that's possible. But if it's not, we're going to go to another country. We're going to try to find another place to go to to try to be safe. Now, assuming that we even make that journey, which we may not, because you're talking about walking with kids and all this other stuff. It's an arduous journey. Once I get to that country, I have an expectation that more than likely, once I get in there, I'm going to get arrested. That's my expectation, because I don't have a visa. I don't have any of the things that I need to get into that country properly. But the expectation I do not have is that I'm going to be separated from my kids. Because having gone through all of that time and all of that energy to try to get there, going through all that trauma, the one thing that I hold on to is that at least when I get to this place and I'm going to be begging for mercy that they're going to let me stay, is that they'll keep me together with my kids. And I have to say that I am very glad that our president signed an executive order rescinding the mandate that, these, that parents and children be separated from one another. Should it never happen in the first place, I'm glad it's not happening now. And I don't care what your political party is. I don't care whether you're Republican, Democrat, Independent. Our values in this room, our highest values, are what Jesus tells us to do. His morals, his ethics, what he promotes to us. That's the highest value for all of us in here. That's what unites us together. And he calls on us, more than anything else, to see equality as our highest value, which means that when you're looking at these people, you're trying to put yourself in their shoes and you're asking yourself, what would I do if I was in that situation? How would I want to be treated? Yes, there are laws, no doubt about that. But we have to make sure that when we see the properties 
of equality being broken, it is our job as Christians to stand up. It doesn't matter whether it's happening outside of this country or inside of this country. Our job is to stand up and to speak out against that. Because this building is one of the last places where true equality exists. And what I see happening in a lot of churches out there is that the church is becoming a reflection of what's happening in the world. And I will say I'm very proud of this congregation because I do not see that happening in here in the same way. I see you all making great strides towards actually trying to make this a place of true equality, the kind of equality that Jesus talks about. And the place where I see that happening the most, if I'm being perfectly honest, is on Wednesday night family night. I know not all of you have been there, but if you do ever come to it, you will see something rather remarkable. Because you're talking about all these people who are together. You're talking about young, old, rich, poor. You're talking about black, white, Hispanic, Asian. All these people are there together in this one place. And it is very much that vision of the kingdom. I had a woman who came up to me recently. I don't know how she found out about our family night. She's not associated with Faith Community Homes. She's not associated with our congregation. She's not associated with District 59, who we're doing some stuff with. None of that. I don't know how they, she found out about it, but she came up to me, and she was, she, she like took me aside, and she was like, I'm, she's, I just got to tell you, she goes, this means so much to me that you all do this. Because she told me that she doesn't have any family. She's an older woman. She doesn't have family. She doesn't have anybody to spend time with. And so this night has become the most important night of the week for her. Because she comes to this place and she says, everybody treats me with kindness. Everybody treats me and, and shows me respect. And I feel like I'm part of something bigger than myself. Now, that's an amazing thing. And that's because, it, not because of me, it's because of you guys. You guys create that environment there. And that's why they feel welcome. I will tell you that there are many children. That is their favorite night of the week to come to that. My kids are included in that. I, my kids aren't the only ones either. They will literally throw a fit if we can't go to family night. And that's much thanks to Katie Allen. She's not here, but that's the program she runs. It's that good that the kids want to be there every single week. If you want to get a vision of the future of the church, just come to family night one Wednesday in the fall. Now you all have made these great strides towards equality. And I have to tell you that in my opinion, in my opinion, we are doing a good job. We still need to go higher, though. We're not quite there yet. And so I want to end this morning by saying this. If we want to be the church of the 21st century, our most important core value is that we have to embrace Jesus' vision of equality. We have people who are already doing that in that church. Many of you in here already are. But it needs to become a movement, and you need to inspire those around you to take that extra step. My prayer for you is that you would take your faith as seriously as Perpetua, though. That you would see that vision of equality as something that you're going to do anything to make happen. And that you would see the people here as your family. So these people who are in front of you and next to you and behind you, don't see these people as strangers or as church members. I hope you'll see them as your brothers, your sisters, your sons, your daughters. We are all family here. We just have to be brave enough to embrace one another. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, 
please visit www.firstpresah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.